Well, the passage that, that Susan just read for us is commonly referred to as the high priestly prayer. And it's one of the most important, if not the most important prayer in all of Scripture. It is well documented throughout the Gospels that Jesus prayed and he prayed often. We have many accounts of his prayers throughout the Gospel. But this prayer recorded here in John 17 stands out among the rest. Why? What makes this prayer so unique? What makes this prayer so important? Well, first, it is the longest of Jesus' recorded prayers. And because of its length, it gives us great insight into the heart of Jesus, His ministry, and the life of discipleship. I love Michael Card's suggestion that if you really want to get to know someone, listen to them pray. John invites us to be a fly on the wall as Jesus prays. And this prayer gives us insight into the heart of Jesus. Incidentally, it's a wonderful example for us if the, if the Lord's Prayer tells us how to pray, the high priestly prayer shows us how to pray. Second, it is important because it is one of the last recorded prayers of Jesus. So starting in verse 1, it says, Lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. The hour has come. Jesus is approaching the culminating moment of his earthly ministry. He's hours from the cross. He's saying, Father, the hour has come. The hour has come. I have done what you have sent me here to do. And in a few short hours, he will cry out, It is finished. This prayer is unique and important because it comes at an absolutely critical moment, not just in the life and in the ministry of Jesus Christ, but in the history of the entire created order. This prayer comes at an absolutely critical moment, which begs the question, what on earth was he praying for? What on earth was he praying for? For him to pray at such a moment, this must have been an awfully important prayer. I mean, think about it. Prayer anticipates specific outcomes, right? Prayer anticipates specific outcomes. When we pray, we pray for specific outcomes. So, so, so when you pray for, for, for your wayward, drug-addicted child, you're praying for a specific outcome. You're, you're praying that they come home. You're praying that they get clean. You're praying that they find Jesus and that they stay clean. What about marriage? When you pray for your marriage, you, you are praying for a healthy, whole, God-honoring marriage. You are praying for something specific. When we pray, we pray for specific outcomes. Well, guess what? Jesus prays the same way. Jesus prays the same way. When Jesus prays, he prays for specific outcomes and he prays for specific people. In this prayer, he prays for himself, he prays for his disciples, and he prays for all believers. 
So in verses 1 through 5, he prays for his own glory to be revealed. In verses 6 through 19, he prays for the sanctification of his disciples. And in verses 20 through 26, he prays for the unity of all believers. And while these three requests are distinct, and we will examine each one in turn, there is a common thread that binds them together into a beautiful tapestry, a single divinely woven prayer request. Jesus prays and he says in verse 3, He says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is the preface for everything he is about to ask. Eternal life is the preface for everything he is about to ask. The high priestly prayer is a prayer for the flourishing of eternal life. Father, I have done what you have sent me here to do. Now bring forth the yield of fruit. Now this begs the question, what is eternal life? Well, we we actually don't need to look any further than this verse to find that answer. As Dallas Willard noted, the the only definition of eternal life found in Scripture is John 17.3. And how does he define it? This is eternal life, that they may know you that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now, as evangelicals, we, we have a tendency to think of eternal life in a very Billy Graham, thief-in-the-night, left-behind sort of way. In other words, we, we have a tendency to think of eternal life as, as some sort of future eschatological hope. And indeed, it is that. It is a future hope. But it is not just a future hope. Jesus tells us that it is so much more than a future hope. This is eternal life that you may know. That they may know you. Now, believer, do you understand what this means? Do you know Jesus? Do you have a personal relationship with the Father through Jesus Christ? Now, as good evangelicals, I would imagine you would all answer, yes. But do you really know what that means? Do you understand the implications of what that means? As you sit in your seat, as you occupy this moment in space and in time, you are basking in the present in the present reality of eternal life. Yes, eternal life is a future eschatological hope, but it is so much more than that. Eternal life is a present reality, and you are living in it now. Many of us, us, myself included, I have been guilty of this, many of us, we, we spend our days twiddling our spiritual thumbs, waiting for eternity to come. But Jesus wants much more for us than that. Jesus prayed for the flourishing of our eternal life today. So this morning, it would be very easy as we, as we go through these three prayer requests of Jesus, it would be very easy for me to go through these three prayer requests and, and, and give you actionable items, things that you can do, five ways to be a better, better Christian. It would be very easy for me to do that. But I don't want to do that this morning, and here's why. Because our role in this prayer is actually passive. None of us was even alive and present on the earth when it was first prayed. 
Our role is passive. But before we were thought in anyone else's mind, we were thought in Jesus' mind, and he prayed this prayer for us. Our role is passive, his is active. So this morning, I want us to actually get into a posture of reception. In a moment, we're just going to take 30 seconds, a minute, and I just want you to, to, between you and God, silently, to get into a place of receiving from the Father what Christ has prayed for for you. Now, if you're like a physical person and you, you want to put your arms open into a posture of reception, you could do that. I'm not a physical person. I'm not going to do that. But if that's you, go for it, okay? So we're just going to take a moment just quietly before us and the Lord to, to just get into a posture of reception. I'm not going to give you a list of do's and don'ts today. I'm just going to give you encouragement and hope that we have in Christ. So let's just take a moment between us and Jesus, and get into a posture of reception. Lord, many of us walk into this room this morning having absolutely no idea what it is we need. We think we know what we need and we fight and we bicker and we quarrel and we do everything we can do to grasp on what we think we need when it's not really what we need. And Lord, you know exactly what we need. And you have already interceded on our behalf to the Father to request that which we need. And so, Lord, I just pray that we would remain this morning in a posture of reception, receiving from the Father what you have asked of him for us. In your name, amen. So the very first thing that Jesus prays for in verses 1 through 5 is for his own glory. For, for his own glory to be revealed. Look at verse 1 with me. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And then continuing on in verse 5, he says, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Now, at first glance, this request seems kind of bold, it seems kind of presumptuous. Indeed, if anyone else made this request, we, we might think them uh, quite self-centered, even, even maybe a little narcissistic. I mean, consider the author of this gospel, John. John used to get in trouble with his, other, with his brother, right? James and John. And do you remember the request that James and John made of Jesus? It's recorded for us in, in Mark chapter 10. And James and John, they go before Jesus and they say, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. 
That's a loaded question, right? We want you to do whatever we ask of you. It's like two little boys going before their dad. And he said to them, well, what, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left hand in your glory. And how did Jesus respond to them? You have no idea what you're asking. You have no idea what you're asking. Can you drink my cup? Of course, the answer to that question is no, they, they could not. James and John made an inappropriate request because they were in no position to make that request. But Jesus is fundamentally different from James and John. He's fundamentally different from James and John or, or anyone else who would dare to make such a bold and ostentatious request. Jesus is the only person who could pray this way and get away with it. Why? Look at verse 5. Father, glorify me together with yourself. Now, if we put a period there, it would be no different than, than, than the request of James and John. But commas make a big difference. Father, glorify me together with yourself, comma, with the glory which you had with you before the world was. More than any other gospel writer, John emphasizes Jesus' divine origin. The very first chapter of the Bible states that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Apostle John echoes these words in his gospel writing, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He then repeats himself in his first epistle writing, that which was from the beginning, the Word of life, was made manifest. By starting with the beginning, John locates, uh, locates Jesus at the epicenter of space and time, concluding that through him all things were made, and without him was nothing made that has been made. Moreover, John makes it clear that, that Jesus is the true light which comes into the world to light everyone. God sent his Son, Jesus, to the earth to reconcile the eternal split between spirit and matter, between divinity and mortality. The Apostle Paul described this event in great detail in his letter to the church of Philippi. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul writes and he says, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be held on to, but he emptied himself. How? By taking on the form of a servant. By taking on the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being transformed into human form, he humbled himself. How? By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. God the Son was sent into the world by God the Father, and here he assumed the most humbling position possible. His request foreshadowed, was foreshadowed by, by the most humbling of circumstances, 
the pinnacle of all of existence, the, the one who all of existence could not exist apart from, entered this world as a servant. And now he is simply asking for the Father to restore his preeminent or his pre-incarnate glory. He was the only person to ever walk the earth who could make such a request. And as we will see later, this request for glory is actually the most loving and inclusive thing that Jesus could have asked of the Father. Let's move on to the second request. Jesus prays for the disciples. Specifically, he prays for their sanctification. Now, before we unpack this point, I I think it's important for us to understand who it is Jesus is actually praying for. Who is Jesus actually praying for? Jesus begins this prayer saying, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of this world. Uh, Some of you may be sitting there and you're a little puzzled thinking, wait a minute, that's not what my translation says. That's not what Susan just read. What's going on? Well, here's the thing. I'm using the New American Standard Bible. I've been using it for 20 some odd years. It's a good translation. I will continue to use it. Um, but, But you might be using a different translation which renders the verse differently. So you might be using the English Standard Version, the ESV, which renders the verse, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me. Or or you might be reading, as Susan read from the NIV, a translation that, 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 that renders it this way, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me. Now, now the translators of the ESV and the NIV have chosen to translate this passage differently from the NASB, and for good reason. The term in the original text is a gender-neutral term. It is a gender-neutral term. We might understand this term in our own modern culture as mankind or humanity. So, it is a, so if it is a gender-neutral term, then, then what is going on with my translation? What is the problem with my translation? Well, the translators of the NASB in similar translations made an interpretive decision in their translation. They made a, a, an interpretive decision in their translation. They translated and interpreted this passage as if Jesus is praying exclusively for the 12 disciples who are all men. However, the term here is a gender-neutral term, and we know from the depth and the breadth of the Gospels that Jesus did not exclusively surround himself with the twelve disciples. We know from the depth and the breadth of Gospels that he was surrounded by a whole host of disciples. And we know from the depth and the breadth of the Gospels, particularly the Gospel of Luke, that this host of disciples included women. So why am I pointing this out? What is the big deal? Why make such a big deal out of this? I'm pointing this out for all of the ladies sitting in this room who may have a translation like the NASB in their hands. I can only imagine 
that when you read those words, you might have felt immediately excluded. But I want you to know that that is not what the text says. You are not excluded, and you are most certainly included. Why am I pointing this out? I'm pointing this out because if everyone in this room is is going to get the most out of this next section, well, then everyone in this room needs to be included. Now, I do want to give one caveat here. Listen to what I'm saying and not what I'm not saying. Okay? Listen to what I'm saying and not what I'm not saying. I am not saying Jesus was, was not a complementarian. I'm not saying that Jesus was an egalitarian as a very dualistic and stupid way to approach this text. I'm not saying that. I, I'm simply saying this. We ought not to draw lines where Jesus did not draw them. We ought not to make black and white what Jesus has not rendered in black and white. Ladies, there is a place for you in this passage this morning. I mean, just consider Mary, Mary and Martha, right? Luke chapter 10, right? Martha is distracted with all of her preparations, right? She's got this party of guests over and she's busy doing dishes and preparing food and all this stuff, right? And she's getting frustrated and mad. Why? Because where's her sister Mary? Where is her sister Mary? Right? She's right where the text says she chose to be, which is at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus affirmed her choice, saying that she chose good. She chose good. So ladies, as we enter into this next section of this prayer, I want you to know you are disciples, and you are welcome at the feet of your rabbi, whose prayer includes you. So let's continue with Jesus' prayer. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now, Jesus's earnest request, sorry, Jesus's earnest prayer request is for the Father was the protection and preservation of the disciples. His prayer request was for the protection and the preservation of his disciples, particularly the protection and preservation of their identity. Jesus prays. Look at verse 11. Jesus prays, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I have come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given them. In other words, Father, I am soon to leave this world. The the ones whom you have entrusted to me, I entrust them back to you. Keep them, uh, preserve them, protect them. Again, Jesus prays, I have given them your word, And and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. In other words, Father, I am not of this world. Neither are my disciples. Neither are my disciples. Keep them, preserve them, protect them. And finally, Jesus prays and again he cries, they are not of this world. Even as I am not of this world, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. In other words, 
Father, as you have set me apart, set them apart. As I have already mentioned, all of these requests are concerned with the the protection and preservation of identity. Jesus prayed for all of his disciples to be kept in and kept from. To be kept in and to be kept from. To be kept in what and to be kept from what. He prays, Holy Father, keep them in your name. The name which you have given me. Jesus prays that his disciples would continue to identify with him. They are his disciples and he prays that in his absence they would remain in his name. In the knowledge of him held there by the love of the Father. He prays again, keep them from the evil one. Now it's important to note, Jesus was not praying that his disciples would avoid all conflict and hardship. He's not praying for that. In fact, in the previous chapter, Jesus guaranteed them that in this world you will have trouble. In this world you will have trouble. Conflict and hardship are assumed and inevitable for anyone who would follow after Christ. Every single one of the apostles, uh, but one of them, or sorry, every single one of them was persecuted, and all but one of them was martyred. The author of this book, John, he was still persecuted. He was exiled to the island of Patmos. To be a disciple of Jesus Christ is to encounter conflict and hardship. But Jesus prayed and he said, I do not ask you to take them out of the world. Do not keep them from the conflict and hardship, but keep them from the evil one. As disciples of Jesus, they they are sent into the world, but they are not of the world. They are sent into the world, but they are not of the world. Jesus is praying for the Father to keep them in his name, to keep them from going the way of Judas by identifying with the evil one. Both these requests are they're, they're two sides of the same coin. They're two sides of the same coin. Keep them from the evil one. Keep them in my name. Please, please don't let them identify with the evil one. Keep them identifying with me. Finally, he prays, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. To be sanctified means to be set apart. Jesus is praying for his disciples to be set apart from the world. To be set apart in the truth. One commentator notes that God's word in Scripture was truth. He goes on to explain, If God had sanctified his people or set them apart among the nations by giving them the word in Scripture... How much more are followers of Jesus set apart by his coming as the word made flesh? The incarnation is the most significant hallmark of Christianity. The incarnation is the most significant hallmark of Christianity. The incarnation is what separates Christianity from every other world religion. As disciples of Jesus, we do not identify with a list of do's and don'ts. As disciples of Jesus, we do not identify with the mundane routines of dead orthodoxy. As disciples of Jesus, we do not identify with the belittling dogma of oppressive hierarchies. 
As disciples of Jesus, we identify with the way, the truth, and the life. We identify with the Word made flesh. We identify with Jesus. And it is in our identification with the way and the truth and the life that we will one day walk boldly into the throne room of the Father. Now remember, the only definition of eternal life is this, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. We are sanctified in the relational knowledge of the truth. We are sanctified in the relational knowledge of the truth, and that's truth with a capital T. We are set apart in Jesus Christ. We are sanctified in the truth. Jesus Christ is the truth. I want to ask you a question this morning. Are you a believer? Good. But believer, are you a knower? Are you a knower? It's good that you believe, but even the demons believe and shudder, right? Believer, you are called to be more than a believer. You are called to be a knower. And not just a knower of Bible trivia and theological factoids. Right? I'm just about ready to graduate seminary. I can tell you right now that if you are not a knower in the relational sense, that nothing you learn in seminary matters. You are called to be a relational knower of the divine reason made flesh, Jesus Christ. Believer, do you know him? Do you know him in the here and now? This is an important question. This is a very important question. Because if eternal life is not your present reality, it most certainly will not be your future reality. Believer, are you a knower? You know who was a knower? Mary was a knower. Mary was a knower. She sat at Jesus' feet. She washed those feet with her tears. She listened to him teach. She was the first to see him through tear-filled eyes on the morning of the resurrection. Do you know him like that? Do you know him like that? Because he wants to know you like that. He prayed for you. He prayed for you. There in that garden 2,000 years ago, he prayed for the flourishing of your eternal life today. Your eternal life as present reality. He prayed for that. Do you know him? Now, there's no guilt in this question. There is no shame in this question. There is no judgment in this question. Why? Well, remember, we are in a posture of receiving this morning. 2,000 years ago, in a dark, quiet garden, Jesus knelt down and he prayed for you in this moment today. He prayed for the flourishing of your eternal life. It is not something you deserve. It is not something you can earn or work for. It is simply something to receive. So since we're all in a posture of reception this morning, all we have to do is receive. Amen? Lastly, Jesus prays for the unity of all 
believers in verses 20 through 26. Now, do you remember when I said earlier that, that Jesus' request for the revelation of his glory is actually the most loving and inclusive thing that, that, that Jesus could have asked of the Father, right? For, for Jesus' own glory to be revealed is the most loving and inclusive thing he could have prayed for. Okay, here's why. Jesus begins his third and final prayer with these, ver- with these words starting in verse 20. Jesus says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone. That's the disciples, right? He's referring to the disciples there. I do not ask on behalf of these disciples alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. The Father sent his Son into the world. The Son sent his disciples into the world. And it is through their faithful witness that many have come to believe, including us. And so Jesus prayed, May they all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. So that the world may believe that you sent me. Jesus prayed that all believers may reflect the unity of the Father and the Son and in doing so be a light and a testimony to the entire world. As the Father sent His Son into the world and the Son sent His disciples into the world, so we too are sent into the world to reflect the love and the unity of God. Moreover, we're sent into the world to reflect His glory. We're sent into the world to reflect His glory. Look down at verse 22 with me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them. The most inclusive thing He could pray for, for, for the revelation of His own glory. Why? Because He was going to give it away. The glory which you have given me, I have given them. This is the present flourishing of eternal life. We share in his glory now, presently, as you sit and occupy this space in time. You share in his glory. But one day we will share in his glory in an even greater way. Jesus continues his prayer. Verse 24, he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory. In love, the Father sent Jesus into this world on a divine rescue mission. In love, Jesus set aside his glory to, to, to complete his mission. And so this prayer ends where it began. Jesus' request for the revelation of his glory was ultimately a request to include us. Think about it. He never had to set it aside in the first place. Why did he set it aside? 
so that he could come onto this earth on a rescue mission, so that he could mount the cross, pay the penalty for our sins, be reinstated fully into his glory, and bring us with him. That we may experience perfect unity with the Father, the Son, and the whole host of glory with him. That is what it means to flourish in the eternal life. This is the common thread that binds these three requests together into a beautiful tapestry, a single divinely woven prayer request for the flourishing of eternal life. And remember, this morning we have been in a posture of receiving. So I think it's only appropriate that we conclude in a posture of receiving. So once again, I want to end just with a moment of silence. If you just quiet yourselves before the Lord, put yourself into a posture of receiving. Receiving from the Lord what He has asked for you. In the sharing in His glory, we receive that. In His keeping and His protection for you, receive that and the unity that he wants to foster between you. Receive that. And the mission that he wants to accomplish through you to reach this world, receive that. Just take a moment between you and the Lord to receive what he has already secured for you. Lord, would you just break down our dependency upon the evil one? We are in the world, but we are not of it. Lord, would you keep us in your name? Would you hold us and protect us there? Would you encourage us and equip us to reach your world? Would you hold us together in unity and preserve us until we get to see the fullness of your glory. Lord, we, we ask for that this morning. And we know that our asking is just the echo of a far greater asking, the asking of Jesus Christ to you. And so, Lord, we receive this morning what Christ has already prayed for us. We receive from you, Father in heaven. In your name, amen.